Good afternoon, beautiful people. I'm keeping all my content free of charge so there's complete transparency so everyone can get the benefit of all the information. This is a completely independent podcast, but any monetary support is greatly appreciated. Click the support this podcast link at the end of the episode description for more details. Now back to the show. Due to popular demand, you can subscribe to Kiko's Freethinkers Forum on YouTube. You can watch all of our videos there on our YouTube platform. Now you can also subscribe and listen to any of our audio on Spotify, Anchor, Radio Public, Podvine, Podbean, Amazon, and different platforms. Please tell your friends and family, and I hope you enjoy your day, beautiful people. Good afternoon, beautiful people. Welcome to another episode of Kiko's Free Thinkers Forum. We are at episode 33, believe it or not, the, the forum is really kicking off, and we're in full force today with Jeffrey Summers. He joins us today in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. He's a professor in the Department of Africana Studies and Af- Afro-Diasporic Studies, um, kind of something that I delve into as well, and he is here to talk about Ukraine and Russia. He's the third guest there's actually come on to the forum to discuss Flashpoint in Ukraine. And he has an interesting title in his chapter, which is uh, called Hangover in Ukraine, Treat of Versailles Spirits Packaged in Bretton Woods Bottles the Morning After. And so I have a lot just to talk with the title alone and to discuss this topic with the current uh, Russo-Ukrainian war that's going on right now. Uh, Professor Summers, I just want to say welcome to the show, and I appreciate you accepting that invitation. Well, I, I really appreciate being invited. I'm really looking forward to uh, talking with you, and uh, I'm, I'm delighted that you're interested in the contribution that I made to the volume. I have to say, though, just with this caveat, uh, I have not read the other contributions uh, to the volume. Some of the authors are ones that I uh, regard highly, and a few a little bit less so. So I, uh, I have to say that I, I, I don't consider myself associated with all of them, but um, you know, uh, everyone has a right to speak, of course. Yes, and that's the intriguing part of this uh, compilation of authors. Um, we're talking about 25 different essays in this uh, book, Flashpoint in Ukraine, and my audience is pretty familiar with it now because I've plugged it in to at least five different podcast episodes. And we've talked with Jack Rasmus um, a week or so ago and Matthew Witt as well. Um, he's out in Laverne, California. And Jack Rasmus, he's in Moraga, California, St. Mary's, um, just retired there, um, I think, last year. And so, yeah, we have quite a, um, a smorgasbord of opinions, I guess you can say, in this book. But I think the general sentiment, just reading Flashpoint Ukraine, is that um, it was awarded probably shouldn't happen, and that um, there's a history that leads up to the war. And so I guess my first question to you, um, Jeff, would be, how have your views changed, if at all, from 2014 when this was originally published compared to the current situation now? Well, uh, referencing the, the title of your podcast, I would like to think that I'm a free thinker. But just having reread this chapter about an hour ago, for the first time since I published it in 2014, <laughs> uh, I have to say my views haven't changed. Uh, so I, I'm a little surprised. I thought they, they would have uh, more so. 
but I, I think the piece really, really stands. I mean, I might give a little bit more uh, in the way of um, of uh, a background on, on how, you know, there is such a thing as Ukraine. There is a real uh, Ukrainian uh, nation and that there certainly is agency on the part of Vladimir Putin in terms of launching this war. But um, I fully stand by, you know, I think just about everything I, I wrote in that piece. And that's a question I've asked, and there's been a consistent response from all the contributors. I've reached out to seven people um, mm -hmm. total out of the 20 um, plus authors that are in the book. And um, that's a general sentiment because the situation really hasn't changed. Um, what has changed is um, public opinion about war. And mm -hmm. I feel like that there's just such a vacuum. That's an informational vacuum. Um, and that's the reason why I started this forum in the first place is because what the corporate media tells us is completely different than um, what's led up to this crisis. And if you read some of the Amazon reviews, even from back 2012, 2013, just about Ukraine, just any opinion about Ukraine and these same publications like the New York Times and the Los Angeles Times and all these different companies had a very negative view and portrayal of Ukraine. And that seems to have changed a lot over the past few years, um, especially when the war um, happened last year, when Russia invaded in, in um, I believe it's February, when it was officially happened. And um, the news completely changed to where it became Ukraine was just a necessity and the United States had to defend Ukraine. Um, do, do you agree with that sentiment that there was just a, an abrupt change of public public opinion from the news narratives around Ukraine um, yeah, exactly I, compared to what happened with the Euromaidan revolution and everything else? Yeah, I, I, definitely. Uh, now, I, I do think the Western press was supportive of uh, the Maidan uh, 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 movement and revolution. And, and you know, it's a real thing. And so, in other words, it wasn't just completely orchestrated by the United States as, you know, Vladimir Putin and and uh, many Russian commentators have said, although that said, I mean, the United States has been very involved in Ukraine since uh, its uh, birth as an independent state. With the dissolution of the Soviet Union, the United States has spent, as you know, some $5 billion in Ukraine uh, since that time. So it's definitely uh, had a stake in terms of, of how uh, Ukraine would develop. Uh, but you're right. I mean, you know, the, Ukraine has been a very troubled state uh, since its uh, birth in, in 1991. And this is you know, something which I, I think if you sat down with most Ukrainians and spoke with them one-on-one -on -one in person, they, they would certainly tell you that's the case. Of course, right now, uh, it's very understandable. They feel very much on the defensive because they're in a terrible war. Uh, it's uh, taken tens of thousands of lives, likely somewhere in the hundreds of thousands. And and so, as is human nature, they are ardently defending everything about Ukraine. It's been perfect from the beginning. It was an immaculate conception in terms of its birth. Nothing could be more, more pure. It's a uh, a democracy. It, you know, it, it's it, and there's a long history of this in the United States. I mean, you know, with the uh, Contras. Uh, for those of us who are old enough to remember the United States' support of um, uh, that faction against the Sandinistas in Nicaragua in uh, the 1980s. And these were kind of right-wing thugs, drug dealers, all the rest. And you know, Ronald Reagan, essentially, our president at the time, compared them 
with the United States's uh, revolutionary uh, figures in its own uh, struggle for independence. We kind of <laughs> did the same thing with the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. So, you know, there are these tendencies uh, that are always in place. So we, we seem to need uh, simplistic binaries. People are either all good or all uh, terrible. Uh, the truth about Ukraine is, is that it encompasses uh, the good, bad, and the ugly, like most uh, states. Um, you know, so uh, uh, unfortunately, we are in the middle of a propaganda war, and that kind of nuance is just not tolerated in terms of uh, a discussion of this. But to your point, yes, yes, and yes, I wholeheartedly agree. I, I, I am so troubled by this. I find that we are in something like a World War One-like situation you know, in which uh, our president at that time, Woodrow Wilson, who actually ran on a platform in 1914 of, I will keep you out of that war, uh, <laughs> switched halfway through it and then began to consult with the top figures in the newly emergent uh, art and business of public relations. And that being uh, personified in the figure of Edward Bernays formed the Creel Commission which was a, a group of top uh, public relations strategists designed to shift U.S. public opinion away from entering the war to entering it. And boy, we certainly see something like that on display right now. But, I, I, but on another level, I can see why many Americans who don't know the history of this region very well uh, are so horrified by this terrible war and, and tend to uh, view it uh, very simplistically. That said, I... I, I so wish Vladimir Putin would never have launched this war. And, uh, 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 you know, I just wish we could somehow find a negotiated settlement to it. But at the moment, nobody's being prepped for that, right? Everyone is just being prepped for more war. A hundred percent. And there's, there's this um, ever um, revolving door of um, just this relationship between militarism and money. And um and the funding of all these projects and these wars and these proxy wars and whatever you want to call them um I mean this is definitely a proxy war with um you have the U.S. and NATO um, members basically I guess versus the Russian side um, in this war and um going to a point that you just made about um trying to reach these some kind of a truce or something um. Do you feel that there's a justification at all in this situation with Russia? Um, do you feel that Russia was provoked um, to, to get to this point? Because I definitely believe that there's, def there's blame on both sides, obviously, for this to happen. But um, the way it's presented is that this wasn't really like Putin invaded. But um, there's also been a lead up to that because I guess from the Russian side, they feel that NATO has approached a little bit more East time since these original agreements were made. They feel like, because I think there was something that was quoted not to move an inch to the East. I think no. even in your article, you mentioned that a, a move to the inch um, to the East would justify Russia. I guess, you know, they would respond some kind of a way. Yeah, definitely. You, you know, you're dealing with uh, provocation when the leading figures of the state and in the media feel compelled to insert at the beginning of any statement regarding this war that it was unprovoked. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. So, 
Of course it was provoked. Uh, that doesn't mean that it was right. Uh, and I, you know, and I, I want to be clear on that. And people, again, they, they like it country simple. So when you talk about things in this manner, it quickly puts you on various enemies lists, of which I think I'm probably on a few uh, oh. because of this. But, it, you know, you don't have to take my word for it. I mean, you know, you can just look at uh, the last Cold War diplomats uh, in the United States. So, you know, the dean of, of the leading U.S. Cold War uh, diplomat, George Kennan, uh, when he was in his 90s, uh, warned as much in 1996 in the pages of the New York Times. This was, you know, an ardent right-wing uh, cold warrior. You know, he said, look, if you if you continue in this direction, you're going to get a very unpleasant response uh, from the Russians, and it's going to likely result in war. Uh, there are other figures like Jack Matlock, who is still with us. Uh, he's in his 90s. He was the last U.S. ambassador. Uh, to the Soviet Union, uh, somebody who uh, hated communism, but he had a love of Russian culture. And it was one of the reasons that he was a diplomat. I mean, because he actually knew Russia very, very well, uh, you know, understands the language, uh, reads its poetry at night. You know, he's just that kind of a figure. But, you know, this guy was made the U.S. ambassador to the uh, Soviet Union during Republican rule. Uh, so he very much represented the uh, goals of the U.S. government at that time, which was to undermine communism. But as he said, and still says to this very day, uh, this was very much provoked. I mean, does it mean, does it mean he supports this war? No. Uh, but, but was it provoked? Yes. And so there's a frustration on the part of many of us that have been warning for decades mm -hmm. that this kind of provocation could result in exactly this outcome. Does it mean we support the outcome? No. It, one has to also now look at it from the perspective of those states uh, that either reemerged or emerged for the first time uh, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, from their perspective, they were just terrified of Russian chauvinism and imperialism. And so from their perspective, uh, boy, they were just keen on entering NATO. They thought that was the best protection that could be afforded them. And if you tried to engage them in discussions about well, you know, this might actually bring about tragically the very result that you're trying to avoid. You know, they would very much stiffen up. They just did not want to think in those terms or to believe that. So it's uh, it's a, it's a, it's just nothing less than a tragedy, of course. Uh, from their perspective, uh, in the 1990s and during NATO was a matter of some urgency. This was going to provide them protection. This would ensure that uh, they would live not under the yoke of uh, Russian imperialism, uh, but free. So it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's tragic, uh, to my mind, the whole situation, because, uh, you know, it's hard to say how this best should have been played out. But in the title of my uh, piece, which you uh, referenced, which one needs to know some history to understand why I chose it, and it's kind of a, you know, longish title, but hang over in Ukraine, Treaty of Versailles spirits, alcohol, packaged in Bretton Woods bottles, you know, the morning after, in other words, hangover. What I was trying to say with this was that, and again, remembering that this was nine years before this war occurred, that the treatment that was given Germany after World War One, which was one of essentially blaming them entirely for the conflict, uh, you know, really, really treating them poorly, created or prepped the ground for the rise of an unpleasant backlash in the form of Adolf Hitler 
and fascism. Now, was Russia being treated as badly as Germany after World War I? No, not quite as bad. Were they being treated good? To my mind, no, definitely not. Uh, so the analogy or the metaphor is one which I think holds in direction, but not you know, at exactly the same level. And so what I was trying to say you know, was, you know, we, we should really find a better way of trying to get along with the Russians uh, because something very unpleasant could happen if we keep going, because they have a different sense of history than ours. You know, it's an entirely different understanding. And one of the things that I kept I kept uh, hearing in my many travels to uh, Russia uh, you know, over the past few decades, even from very liberally minded people. So in other words, not Putinistas or certainly not chauvinists. There are people in Russia way to the right of Vladimir Putin. Americans often oh, don't yeah. understand, <laughs> understand this. Uh, but, but I mean, believe me, there is a really big number of people that are far to the right of him. But uh, the thing that 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 even a lot of these kind of liberals who supported the United States is uh, uh, efforts to, um, at least in the 1980s, when they talked about you know creating a democratic uh, Russia, was that they they all kind of felt betrayed after the 1990s. They felt that the United, you know, and you can get into debates with people to the extent to which this is true or not. But I'm just saying, in terms of perception, there was the sense by people who were even very democratically uh, inclined that the United States had somehow taken advantage of Russia. Uh, that the 1990s were disaster decade for that country. They understand their own oligarchs pilfered and robbed the place blind, but they felt that it was done with the, uh, at least non-interference of the United States of actual support of the United States, because a lot of that money was flowing back into the United States. Uh, mm -hmm. And that, you know, moreover, we kept pushing this NATO alliance closer to their borders. So from a country that was invaded and trashed during World War II, and I mean trashed in a way that the United States has or no other country has ever experienced, uh, you know, this just was not going to play out well there, and it certainly hasn't. You, I think you referenced 25 million Soviets died during that war. Yeah. And of course, you know, um, one of the things that you hear from people in East Europe was, well, yeah, you know, well, the Soviet Union, they killed plenty of their own people, all quite true. Uh, but, uh, you know, when you're invaded, it's a different story. And it's the same thing like with Ukraine now, right? So Ukrainians right now are not so much interested in listening to critiques of what has transpired in their country the past 30 years, you know, from their perspective. And it's true. They're, 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 they're under assault. They're under attack. And so um, they view that as the only thing to, to really focus on. Uh, the one thing we know, you know from history is people do not like to be ruled from abroad and they do not like to be attacked from abroad. And the second that it happens, they pretty much take the broom out and all of their sins are you know, swept under the carpet. Something you said about um... You explained the Treaty of Versailles and kind of the treatment of um, Germany in that context of World War One, yeah. and also um, just Russia is not really a, an equivalence, um, but I can definitely see the parallels. And I mm -hmm. thought about there's a cultural struggle with Russia, and I think you made the point about um, the NATO membership um, and the U.S. kind of egging that on and all these different people. I think who are the latest people to just join or about to join for membership? Is it Sweden and Finland? Uh, 
Well, Finland, uh, um, Finland is definitely going to join the Turks because all the EU, all the NATO members have to agree. The Turks have agreed. Uh, Sweden is having a bit of a wrinkle, as you may know, and that's because of their support of uh, Kurdish uh, uh, separatists mm -hmm. in in Turkey. And boy, there's a population that has gotten a raw deal, you know, over mm -hmm. over the past many decades. But um, you know, Turkey is not quite willing to allow Sweden into NATO until they cooperate more with Turkey on suppressing uh, Kurdish separatism. And then you also have, um, there's some people who have talked more about the issue with Georgia um, and how <laughs> that has been, that could become a, another Ukraine um, just based on the location. Uh, that's what I've been thinking about is just this complex um, situation of locality of, of geography because when people ask the question is Russia really Europe and I and I in fact would say no like I never considered Russia a part of Europe and just based on history and it, it I think that's the, the struggle with Ukraine is because it's in a location where superpowers automatically see it as just an opportunity zone almost um, um, how can you kind of speak to that, how geographics may play into this um, conflict with Ukraine and just how it's positioned in a part of the world where there is this struggle with NATO and Russia? Yeah, I mean, you know, without boring your listeners, the long historical uh, discussion, but boy, are you ever right on this. I mean, geography is so determinative. And so, you know, there's this... Uh, a geographic zone which stresses stretches over uh you know much of eurasia it's called the steppe and it's just this kind of flatlands and it's essentially you know that'll you know in the 12th and 13th century would allow the mongols to come streaming in and and you know not be obstructed by geography uh and, and pretty much trashed everything in, in the area i've been rebuilt actually quite an interesting um, uh, well-functioning economy and in, in society throughout the area, but that's another story. Uh, Mongol specialists will, will tell you all about that. Uh, but uh, yeah, and so you know, if once you get uh, into you know these flat areas of Ukraine, and once you get uh, beyond the Carpathian Mountains of southern Poland, and uh, you know, enter into, you know, this flat terrain. I mean, of course, there are problems with, you know, boggy uh, terrain, which, you know, hampers the movement of tanks, et cetera. But, but for the most part, yeah. So it, it's, it's a lot for uh, warring armies in the past to stream back and forth. And so uh, the countries are very sensitive uh, to anything that looks like a potentially hostile alliance on their border. So the Russians have this doctrine, it's called strategic depth. And they've had this ever since they were invaded by Napoleon, you know, mm. two centuries ago. And essentially what they learned from that war uh, when Napoleon came in was that, boy, there's certainly not much in the way of geographic impediments to stop an army that's determined to storm across their country. Uh, but what happens is that if you just control a lot of land, eventually they're going to run out of steam and supplies. So the, the Russians have always been keen to retain as much of that space as possible. Now, of course, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, they lost a lot of that Western uh, train that they once held, you know, and controlling many people that did not want to be part of, of their, their block, of course. Uh, so, you know, but nonetheless, at the very least, what they don't want are countries that are hostile to them there. Now, you referenced Georgia. 
uh, Georgia and the uh, Caucasus, uh, you know, the Caucasus Mountains, uh, they've always been keen to have those mountains separating them, of Russia, from uh, peoples to the south. That's a geographic uh, border, these mountains. So they, they can't be invaded from there. Uh, so, yeah, they get very sensitive about talk of Georgia entering NATO. Uh, and of course, when George, President George W. Bush mentioned this in 2008, that you know Georgia should join NATO, that led to the uh, Russians uh, intervening in a sort of civil war that had been ongoing for over two decades in uh, Georgia, and that is between its peoples in the um, northern part of its country, the Abkhazians and the Ossetians. And the uh, Russians invaded uh, on their side, more or less, I think, trying to uh, set a lesson that, you know, you shouldn't try and further encircle us as the Russians saw it. Now, of course, you get an entirely different narrative from the United States and from these countries who are formerly part of the Soviet Union or the Russian Empire. And they'll say, nonsense, this is a peaceful alliance. Etc. 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 And right now, it, it, yeah, you know, for the most part, it is. But with the German, I mean, rather, what the uh, Russians will then counter with is that, well, look at Germany. You know, in the 1920s, it was considered to be the most civilized country in the world in terms of philosophy, music, high culture, all the rest. There couldn't be a more uh, cultured uh, uh, society. And then in 10 years, they turn into the world's worst monsters and completely <laughs> trash their country. So that that's you know what. That's how the Russians see it. Like, yeah, peaceful today, tomorrow, who knows? Whereas, again, Russia's borders, they just see the Russians as always treacherous. And so it's a very, very difficult situation. It's a very difficult situation. One more point, if I can make, but you're absolutely right. The Russians themselves don't, some of them kind of view themselves as Europeans, you know, because it's a huge country, right? Mm -hmm. So maybe like in the Baltic region around St. Petersburg, they kind of more see themselves as uh european but several of their leaders you know in the past have said no i mean joseph stalin who was a georgian head of the soviet union uh um and this is a self-description now so you know don't blame me for this description please but you know you know he said you, you know you have to understand i'm you know they think referring to the west they think i'm european i'm not i'm i'm asiatic i mean that's how he described himself mm -hmm. uh and more recently with uh dmitry medvedev who between you know uh, that interim period when Vladimir Putin had to you know, go down to prime minister in order to meet the requirements of their constitution. Uh, you know, he said these Western leaders, they, they, they say, well, uh, they think because we look like them, that we are like them. They need to understand we're not like them. We're not like you. <laughs> we may right. look like you. We may look like you, but we we are different. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, there's a lot of these misunderstandings. Uh, yeah, and and this is really uh, it, it's a situation now that we it, it's going to be an investment now. I mean, we we have an interest. Um, we've been the U.S. and um, a lot of the Western world um, to where I just it seems like it's a situation where reaching some kind of an agreement may be um, quite difficult at this point because. Um, I feel like the exploitation of the region, um, culturally speaking, economically speaking, almost plays into some kind of a deranged justification to keep it going on. I mean, that's what scares me the most about this. Um, and 
I can only allude back to the pullout of Afghanistan. It, it seemed like that the military war machine had to have some kind of another justification or another provocation to go into other wars. And so, because that had kind of got exhausted out. The public had been sick of hearing about Afghanistan and Iraq. And so this is almost becoming just a new um, arm of the military industrial complex, it seems like. They redirected the military industrial complex from over there to here. Yeah, you know, it's um, there's multiple forces in operation. So does the military industrial complex cheerlead for this war and all wars? Pretty much. Uh, it's huge business for them. So there's no doubt about that. Uh, at the same time, the United States... Um, you know, from their perspective, they see the world as better off under U.S. leadership, and that requires a fist, you know, a legitimate, credible uh, uh, force to be deployed when necessary, because there's lots of bad actors in the world. That's how they see it. And, and you know, there are a few, too. Uh, so, you know, they would see the military industrial complex as, as necessary, despite, you know, President Eisenhower's uh, caution against this when he <laughs> yeah. left office that, you know, these, these guys will bankrupt you if you give them a chance. So be careful. Uh, so, you know, we don't seem to care about that so much anymore. So there's definitely that. Um, and then there are uh you know for lack of a better term you know these kind of cultural elites as uh, i guess the you know gop would refer to them today in their kind of vernacular oh but it's real i mean you know you do have these ivy leaguers and they've had a disproportionate uh influence on on u.s foreign policy and opinion making you know over the generations and you know there's a kind of a narcissism in operation here they, they tend to see themselves as representing good and 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 have these values of human rights and and, and all of the rest. I, I think they actually a lot of them believe it. Uh, uh, but then that also intersects with the interests of um, another element of the foreign policy establishment, which is just as you've stated, it has a very kind of realpolitik outlook on on uh, you know world affairs and and so this goes back to like 1990. What is it? Six when Zbigniew Brzezinski uh, penned yeah. his famous work, The Grand Chessboard, where he articulated a need to, eh, you know, maybe we should bust up Russia into three countries if possible. Uh, we certainly need to make sure that they don't have uh, Ukraine ever. Uh, and if we do this, well, then we'll have a much more peaceful world. I, you know, so there's a lot of people in the foreign policy establishment that subscribe to that view that Russia needs to be busted up. It, you know, it, it wouldn't be so dangerous if it would just lose its aspirations to being a um, a major regional power. Uh, so, you know, all these things are combining, right? And, and, and you know, and then there's the problem that, you know, we haven't had uh, a real war in terms of how the United States experiences uh, this. I mean, the United States hasn't really experienced one since the Civil War. Uh, so, you know, we, we lack a sense of what war means. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know what it means. I mean, I haven't, I haven't experienced the, the horrors of this. Uh, uh, and, and, you know, so we have a whole generation of, um, foreign policy types and, uh, politicians, you know, they've, you know, maybe they've, you know, served in, uh, you know, reserves or something, but they, they don't know anything about war and, and, and what it's brought. So, you know, you have a lot of these chicken hawk types that, uh, they, they seem to, you know, uh, almost embrace war. I really don't understand it given how evil it is. And, uh, uh, so yeah, that, you know, but there's definitely, I mean, I don't want to underplay 
you know, I, 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 God, I feel terrible for what's happening to Ukraine right now. I, and I just explained uh, in my uh, chapter from a decade ago and, and from previous writings that I had too, why I thought it could unfortunately end this way. I, I, I tell you every day I think about this, how can we get out of it? And I, it's really hard to come up with a solution once you've gotten in this deep, boy, how, how do you stop it? I, I have some ideas, but boy, is it going to be hard. Like I was saying, you right before we went on air, um, reading all the chapters, I feel like you, in particular, presented a more balanced um, dynamic in given the context of the situation. I felt like, and this is not to make each um, writer better than the other, but I just felt mm -hmm. like the other writers had maybe slightly different agendas. And it seemed like they were presenting more from the perspective of Russia. And you seem to be yeah. saying, no, this happened because there was no sort of um, rationality. I guess there was no sort of a rational voice from from either of the factions to kind of avoid this to begin with. And just um, hearing some of the stuff you're saying is just, um, I, I asked Jack Rasmus the question, and I think he meant it as a rhetorical question, and, mm -hmm. and it wasn't his fault that he didn't answer it. I think he meant um, that I was posing a, rhetor a rhetorical, but I was really trying to get an answer as to why does NATO even exist in the first place if the Soviet Union broke up? Yeah. I just don't, I don't understand that. That's been something hard for me to understand. Like, why is there even an idea of North Atlantic Treaty Agreement um, or organization when supposedly the Soviet Union is not there anymore? And so to me, yeah. it's almost like, okay, so Russia sees this, well, Eastern Ukraine we're going to tie ourselves back to that if they're going to keep expanding this way. It, it, it just seems like an ideological struggle that's ever, never going to be resolved unless um, they're just several different factions within both of those elements that decide to, um, you know, discuss something. I don't know what it's going to take. I guess going to what you were sort of problematizing, like what will it take to um, ultimately say that enough is enough? And I suggested that to Jack Rasmus that, would it be the exhaustion of war? I think he said that there's been well over hundreds of thousands of people who have already lost their lives. And so will it simply be that easy that just the cost of war is going to be enough to kind of make people not go into war? Yeah, you know, I uh, it's so demoralizing because if we take, I mean, you know, thinking about World War One, every every situation is different, of course, but, you know, it's, Mark Twain once famously opined, you know, he you know, he said the history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. Uh, and so, you know, we we have these rhymes. Uh, I guess in part, you know, I'm thinking about uh, uh, an acquaintance of mine, one of the great intellectuals of, uh, I think, of the past uh, 40 years, a, a Haitian scholar, uh, by the way. And he always reminds me that in many West African philosophical systems, you know, they uh, avoid this kind of binary thinking, which we're so imprisoned by it seems in the west you know everything is either or mm -hmm. uh and so that's what makes it difficult but yeah I, I i'm hoping my piece is different I, I you know again i know some of those other authors by reputation and i would you know say you're right in terms of uh how they probably would present this uh the editor is not somebody that i know at all in fact it's interesting oh, yeah. he just sent he sent me an email and i just happened to be you know writing something at the time and he said would you contribute a chapter and he said uh uh, you know, uh, um, 
you know, Michael Hudson and uh, uh, who I know and have co-authored many pieces with. And me and Michael don't always agree on, on every issue. Uh, and, you know, who else? Let me see. I'm just looking at my copy right here because I did get one in the mail and I just blew the dust off of it. Uh, you know, and I think I can't remember. There was like one other author that I knew that I thought of highly. Uh, but, you know, again, you know, like Michael Parenti would be one of those authors. But there are a few here that I would not agree with. So it's right. at all. It's 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 frustrating. Because, you know, we need a good referee, frankly. You know, I, I get us. I just have the strong sense that and I and I, I I thank you for your comment regarding what you think are my motivations, because I, I try above all else. I know it's not possible to be perfect on this, but I try and be as intellectually honest and to see as many different sides as I can, because I think that's the only way to ultimately solve problems, right? Is if, if you can do that. Uh, if you're just trying to beat up the other side and prevail, uh, it just leads to more conflict. And right now, you know, we have a Russian side and a Ukrainian side, and this is not to say that that you know the, they are equal in terms of you know how we should consider them uh, because you'll get that false equivalency stuff and I, I get that too but you do need a referee that can understand at least if you're going to do diplomacy you damn well better understand how the other side sees this issue or you mm -hmm. get nowhere i think you're i think you're right that there is a faction within the u.s foreign policy it sees exhaustion of Russia as a goal. In other words, just, you know, keep this thing playing out, keep it playing out. Uh, and and that will deliver the result that eh, many of them have always wanted, which is just an exhaust. I mean, they said as much. I mean, Lloyd Austin said as much, you know, that, that we were going to exhaust them. Uh, and so, you know, one can argue uh, the merits uh, of that, uh, but we, you can't say that it's not a a position that is in play because it is, they've told us as much. Uh, and then, you know, it's dangerous, of course, because we, I mean, I mean, it, it, and, I, and we're seeing people die by the day and that's horrible enough. Young men who are being cut down to pride of their lives. God, I feel terrible for them on both the Ukrainian and the Russian side. Mm -hmm. uh, none of them want this for the most part, you know, and with the exception of some uh, crazed uh, chauvinists on the Russian side and a few wound up fascists on the Ukrainian side. So they're a distinct small minority. The majority of these people want no part of this, and yet mm -hmm. they got it. And uh, it's it's uh, it's uh, it's it's just terrible. And so I hope we can find our way to diplomacy eventually. Um, I haven't followed. I try to avoid the the media as much as possible, and, and you know what I mean when yeah. we say the media. Um, yeah. yeah. I almost um, I try to stick to reading books, and and maybe it's a very archaic way of being um but I, I feel like you find more truth um and this is a truth seeking forum and we really want to try to consider everyone's um um dispositions and views and everything yeah. else and i just don't think that um going into those um i guess those hyper sponsored elements you're only going to get one really overall picture sort of approach and again, to reiterate, that's the reason why I reached out to you specifically because um, I could have reached out to a ton of the people in this compilation, but I just felt like that their energy was more guided towards, um, it almost felt like an opinion piece in a column yeah. of some of these corporate news outlets. And yours felt more like, no, that's like a referee type journal. Like that's something that you would see um, presented as just like this is the information this is the history 
and just let people take the facts out of it, you know? And, and, and that's where the lines are blurred between fact and opinion. And that's where I really can't follow the news. But I did want to mention um, Zelensky because I um, told you, I guess I want to hear a little bit about that. Is it true that he's trying? Do you feel like he's trying to reach an agreement um, with Putin, but some force is keeping him from kind of like, does he even have control, I guess, Zelensky? And will he even be president, I guess, moving forward in Ukraine yeah. with this current situation? Before I answer your question, I'm not a Ukrainianist. Uh, by training, I mean, just in terms of my experience. And I think one of the reasons I am different from these authors that you mentioned is a lot of them really have very little familiarity, frankly, with the region. Although uh, me and Michael have, have both, uh, Hudson, who both spent a fair amount of time there, but I've spent way more time than him. I've, I've got like some seven or eight years on the ground since 1995. Oh, wow. uh, I speak a little bit one of the the languages. Uh, I, you know, so I, I have some familiarity with how people think. Uh, in that part of the world. And, uh, and I have a lot of sympathy with, with with many of them, and I understand their fear of Russia. And I know a lot of Russians, too, and I have a lot of sympathy with uh, their concerns uh, as well. And that's why I think I'm able to uh, prevent this uh, perspective, which gets uh, both sides very angry with me, <laughs> because I'm, I'm not just presenting their side, and they want somebody who is going to repeat you know, their side. Uh, so, with Zelensky. I can't really speak to him very well. All I can say is this. He very much leaned, well, he first, in terms of his initial run for the, the presidency of Ukraine, uh, you know, he, he's somebody who comes from East Ukraine. And, and, and this is a, you know, you, we, we shouldn't think of Ukraine as monolithic. It has, you know, areas in the West, which are uh, overwhelmingly Ukrainian speaking, and, and then as you move east and southeast to the country, they become more Russian-speaking, That which doesn't mean necessarily that they sympathize with Russia. Some of them do, some of them don't. But what it does mean is that as you move to the east and southeast, they've been more desirous of autonomy, mm -hmm. local control. And that's why Ukraine, or rather uh, Crimea, uh, has had this since 1994, I mean, because otherwise, you know, the Ukrainians knew that the Crimeans would split if they didn't have this because, you know, they, you know, uh, their preference has been to be autonomous. If they couldn't guarantee that autonomy, they would bolt to Russia, which is what happened mm -hmm. in 2014. Uh, the, the Donbass is a little bit trickier. The balance is a little bit less. I mean, they're definitely, the, I think the majority of um, thought has been autonomy. And that's what they didn't have that. But they, but but, and as and as, uh, uh, and, and with the Maidan, is it went in this more nationalistic uh, direction, which doesn't mean necessarily fascist. Now, it, it you know it means that you had, I would say, the overwhelming um, uh, 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 view of the participants. Not that there weren't right wing extremists, but the overwhelming view, they were kind of emerging younger professionals. And in their minds, if they had to go with Russia or they had to go with West Europe, which was still, you know kind of social democratic, they wanted to go West Europe. Uh, and so they, they, you know, were leaning more towards of what they perceived was a European um, uh, identity. Uh, and we have to say that that's one that's been dissolving in, in Europe. As we get further and further away from World War II, it's becoming less social democratic, but that's another matter. Uh, uh, and so they wanted autonomy and they couldn't get it. 
something like a mini civil war uh, uh, erupts there. And Russia was able to take advantage of that. And so that opportunity was kind of handed to Russia on a bit of a platter uh, by these changes to language laws and all the rest. Zelensky. Zelensky, coming from that region, ran again on the communist platform. I, I'm going to try and fix relations with Russia. Uh, you know, we, we this isn't good for anyone. You know, what's been happening in the Donbass, the separatism, uh, a low level, but uh, continual war since 2014 there with, you know, some sizable casualties. Zelensky kind of wants to end this. Um, he is very much controlled, though, by uh, or affected by a faction within Ukraine that is not interested in working to resolve the conflict in any way that would concede an inch to Russia. Uh, and they see this as um, their territory. They need to Ukrainianize it. Case closed. Zelensky, as recently as March, I think was willing to maybe move back toward a position that was closer to this Maidan agreement that had been made, uh, which would have granted maybe some autonomy and all the rest. Uh, something clearly happened. I mean, we know that Boris Johnson from the UK flies in, then come the Americans, Lloyd Austin and Blinken. And, uh, and then, of course, his own forces on the, on the right, they all, let's just say, stiffen his resolve. Uh, so I don't think he feels that he has support at present for pursuing a negotiated uh, settlement. And I am sure that he is outraged by this war and what it has inflicted uh, uh, on the Ukrainian people. So it's um, it's going to be tough to negotiate a, a way out, but it's not going to happen without the Americans. I can, you know, that's why the Russians keep saying, well, and it, it's a bit arrogant on their part, uh, but that's why, they, you know, the, the Russians are, are kind of almost like, well, let's just speak with the Americans, you know, because the Ukrainians are just pawns here. And, we, you know, we know where the real power is. So uh, and while there's some truth to that, you know, the Russians are going to have to have meaningful talks with Ukrainians if we're ever going to have resolution to this as well. So everyone's got to be included, the Americans and uh, uh, the Russians and the uh, Ukrainians. But unfortunately, I just don't see us getting there soon. I was thinking, is going to something that we talked about earlier, and we talked a lot about the geographic positioning of these regions, uh, yeah. of Ukraine and Russia. And we, you mentioned Crimea, you mentioned um, you, you, how you've been on the ground there yourself for years. Um, so just to sort of revisit that before um, we conclude with something about maybe the prospects of Ukraine going forward as far as economics and the plausibility of this crisis um, shifting, or at least public opinion shifting enough to where um, the establishment does sort of um, heed those warnings and uh, go a different direction. What is it as simple as saying Western Ukraine is very different from Eastern Ukraine? Like what's going on in the middle of the country? Because this is the second largest country. If you consider Europe as a landmass, Ukraine's the second largest country 
after Russia, I don't think a lot of people talk about how big Ukraine is um, compared to the rest of Europe. Um, is it as cut and dry? Because you explained it pretty well how people in eastern Ukraine, and I think that's where some of the authors there, they're presented as those people are pretty much pro-Russia. Like they made it very much a binary thing, like, okay, eastern yeah. Ukraine, pro-Russia, western Ukraine, pro-NATO. And I'm like, is it that simple, you know? And you yeah. told me something that's very different from that, just being on the ground. Um, is there a vacuum there as far as Kiev and and the rest of the country? Like, how does that work as far as the cultural shifts um, in Ukraine? I know you touched on it earlier. Yeah, it, it, you're right. It's not that simple. And, you know, nationalists, you, you, you know, you can never argue with them because, <laughs> you know, they're, you know, it's Ukraine is theirs. And, you know, they can come up with some maps that will even show you uh, Ukraine that in terms of Ukrainian speakers that is larger than the one that we have at present. You can, you know, see other maps that show the country of the tenth of its current size. I would never subscribe to that because it's not, uh, you know. So it's 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 very very difficult. Um, and, and the problem is with all, you know, nation states. These are nation states, right? Because they're built around an ethnic group. Uh, is that there there are no perfect uh, uh, borders, and and so the way that you resolve those usually is with is some form of ethnic cleansing. Whether that be removal of people, that's how historically it's been done, unfortunately tragic, or changing them culturally, which they are often resistant to, understandably. So, yeah, um, you know, Eastern Ukraine, I mean, you know, the problem, you know, again, there is that in the countryside and the rural areas, more Ukrainian speaking. Uh, the you know this is where now most of the urban centers are in the country. Uh, um, overwhelmingly Russian speaking, heavy industry has been that way for you know, for about 125 years, increasingly so all the time. Uh, uh, but just because they're Russian speaking again does not mean that they uh, consider themselves Russians, although a large number of them do. Uh, it 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 the the reality is at least when we go back to around Maidan, um, they. And just post my time, the, the, the prevailing view in that part of Ukraine was for autonomy. They wanted their own legislature, understandably, to a certain extent, from the perspective of, um, of Kiev, which is increasingly dominated by these Western regions of, uh, of Ukraine, they viewed that as a slippery slope, which eventually would result in Russia gaining control over the region, that they would be able to manipulate this legislature and all the rest. And is there a danger of that? Yes. The way you prevail in those contests, though, is you always ensure that the life in those areas that are culturally different is better than it is on the other side of the border. That's how you ultimately win these struggles for political opinion. You don't try and ram down some language down their throat uh, because that's just going to shove them to the other side. So, you know, fear and some degree of interest are often uh, in play here, as they are in I, Russian. I, and I, I'm loving this. I can't wait to play this back and just yeah. learn this information myself. That's why I try to inform my audience. I'm learning along with the audience because I don't claim to be an expert in this region or on this current conflict, but I know that um, having a difference of opinion and just a nuanced version of the story is only going to help um, educate the um, information base 
and it's only going to enrich our um, perspectives going forward. And um, you mentioned also in your article, I wrote down a couple of notes. You said that Russia spends 12 time zones, 100 ethnic groups. I mean, so we're yeah. talking lots of vario um, variability. Um, oh, yeah. Let's make a mistake. It's an empire in many respects. Uh, you know, like, I mean, like, I mean, the United States too, right? I mean, again, I don't want to get into this whole false equivalency thing, which I'll be accused of, but I mean, you know, you know, the United States, I mean, we, you know, we're born of conquest, right? And, and Russia has been too. Yeah, exactly. The only difference with Russia is that a lot of those ethnic groups still exist, whereas we, you know, annihilated them here. Uh, so we don't have that same problem that, that they do to, to that extent. Uh, uh, and, and, you know, I have a record going back to the, mid late 1990s i was a supporter of uh chechen uh secession from russia i mean my view is my view is a pretty simple one and that is that if people don't like who they're being governed by well then let them govern themselves mm -hmm. uh, and of course uh, almost no state ever tolerates that they almost always use uh, the force oh, of the state yeah yeah i mean they do not lose territory but uh, yeah, i yeah i'm kind of an old-fashioned believer actually in self-determination and you know democracy Yes, and um, just that, just some of the lines that you used. Um, you said that Clinton broke the promise and Bush continued it, and and now we have Biden in office. And I mean, just look at these people. The cabinet with these people, um, oh, yeah, yeah, included. Yeah. It's just it's all is it, they use the same playbook. They literally don't even hide it. But it's yeah. just because. And that's the reason why I tried. That's why I'm emphasizing this um, particular element, the Ukraine-Russia conflict, more so than other elements, because I feel like in this country there's a lack of geopolitical awareness. Um, it seems like we seem pretty decent when it comes to advocacy um, on social issues and stuff domestically, but for whatever reason, we completely disconnect that from the rest of the world and the lack of just geographical knowledge and and political affairs going on outside of the United States is just so confusing to me. Um, and a lot of these people are in, in academia. A lot of these people um, are political educated. And it just, I guess it's because people are just so invested in their own backyard. I don't know what it is, but. Yeah. I, I can tell you right now that these efforts of yours, which I applaud uh, to understand this, I mean, you will be met with a, a kind of Neil McCarthyist response. Oh, of, yeah. People are not interested in understanding this right now. It's about taking sides, uh, yeah. you know, and, and um, uh, yeah, so that's what you mean. But it's interesting, you know, you mentioned the expansion of NATO. And again, I, you know, again, fully understand uh, the reasons why uh, the peoples of East Europe uh, wanted uh, NATO membership uh, from their perspective. But, you know, it, it, when the decision was made, because, you know, it, it, was, a, it was really a reversal, again, of U.S. policy uh at the point where the soviet union dissolved mm -hmm. and it, it comes down to in some respects something as simple as in 1996 bill clinton was running for a re-election he really did not know much about this part of the world at all <laughs> and and uh, uh uh you know he was alerted to the fact that well you know there's actually a substantial polish vote and you know unless you get behind this idea of supporting their bid for nato membership you can either have that vote or you can lose that vote. Uh, and so we know what, what direction he went. And then after that, it was a matter of, of uh, and hats off to them, the uh, educated elites of uh, uh, East Central Europe 
did their best job to promote this idea of NATO membership for themselves. And, and they honestly and still do honestly believe that this is uh, their protection from uh, Russian rule. And, and they, boy, they put on a charm offensive mm-hmm. that, you know, has resulted in what we see today. Whereas, you know, the Russians, you know, they, 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 you know, a lot of them kind of have this attitude of, uh, you know, we don't have to genuflect to you. And so they are, you know, not perceived very well by U.S. diplomats. And they, they, you know, they engage in their share of lying too. I mean, like, you know, many uh, uh, political uh, leaders and policymakers do. So, you know, it's, it's a bit of a mess. Yes. Um, the, the history part is something that, um, and I know this is a small contribution. I view this form as a public service, really. Um, like I'm, it's not even to make money. And, um, and I, I get happy just to get guests on. I've been so fortunate to have as many guests as I've had on um, professors and activists, just all different stripes um, politically, um, really for a common cause is to, um, you know, be receptive more to ideas, um, be more receptive to things that you know that these people aren't getting this information, you know, on mainstream media and other outlets. And so, you know, why not listen to what people are engaging in and trying to come to some kind of a, not a consensus, but they're, they're at least opening their minds up to other possibilities um, and and trying to figure out, you know, the complexities of these um, crises that, that we're going through right now. I had a final question about Ukraine and um, what are the process for Ukraine going forward? Um, will it ever be a, a member of NATO? And what will the economy look like um, going forward as a result of this war, we know what the economy is looking like for the Ukrainians, but what will it take to sort of get Ukraine, I guess, more on a stable um, level um, after this is all settled and done, if it is settled and done? Yeah, that's such a good question. In fact, I was talking with a a good friend of mine uh, from one of the former republics of the Soviet Union that's now an independent country. I don't want to say who because uh, everyone is again, you know, at a kind of virtual war with each other right now. But he and I had a very interesting discussion about just this. We were talking about putting a proposal together to make sure that when Ukraine finally uh, saw all of this business behind them, that they would be put on a solid footing for developing their economy, which means not getting the same treatment that was meted out uh, to just about every country of the former Soviet bloc, with the exception of Poland, who got good treatment, because they were the first to bolt, therefore they got good treatment. Uh, so that means uh, uh, wiping out their debts, uh, uh, providing as much investment as is possible, uh, having um, laws in place which try and retain control over their own land, especially their agriculture. Uh, you know, they're one of the world's biggest exporters of grain right now. Uh, and, and you know, I think it would be helpful if that was as domestically controlled as possible so the profits from that are not extracted. Uh, you know, and, and that's one of the disappointments about this war is that, you know, neoliberalism, for lack of a better term, is so prevalent as a doctrine there. And even during this war, 
unfortunately, neoliberals have taken advantage of it to impose like really, really bad anti-labor legislation mm-hmm. that certain economic economic interests in Ukraine have wanted. So anti-labor legislation, uh, just really unpleasant stuff. Hopefully, when this war is over, that terrible stuff can be reversed. Don't keep these people in debt. Let's see if they can, uh, you know, have their economies uh, rebuilt. NATO, I would say right now it is looking like uh, this is the tragedy. I mean, it is looking like they will be part of NATO, which from their perspective, they'll celebrate. But at the same time, as long as Russia thinks that that's a possibility under this current leadership, you know, we don't know that leadership could change. But under this current leadership, uh, I can't see them stopping this war as long as that's still on the table. Uh, they view that as non-negotiable, that NATO cannot be on the table for Ukraine as long as it is. Um, you know, they're not going to, I think, cede control of anything at this point, if they can, uh, east of the Dnieper River. I think they think it's uh, uh, paramount in their for their interests of survival. That's how they see it. Uh, to probably control all of this uh, territory, given that everything else is going to be hostile to them. And we have to remember that, you know, the Russians have, for the most part, especially how they launched this war, is incredibly incompetently. So the Ukrainians, in, on one level, have that, you know, to thank. Uh, I mean, I, I, I could give, you know, a long discourse on just how poorly the Russians uh, launched this, you know, just in terms of military strategy. Uh, uh, but but we, we, we have to remember that they have underinvested in their ground forces, because they only have so much in the way of resources, and at the to the benefit of their nuclear forces, they have modernized those, and they are world destroying deadly. And and uh, we we should never we should never forget that. Now they like to remind us of that, of course, as well. Uh, but but it's real. Um, so in other words, we cannot push this war to the point where it goes nuclear, because then we all lose. Yes, um, I I'm I'm very very happy with kind of the assessment that you've given today, and just um, it's very different from the other conversations. But that's the whole point is to have different um, angles in this um, conflict to kind of um, make sense of all of this uh, situation. And I actually want to have you back on down the road because um. You have lots of publications. Um, you published so much for Counterpunch, um, for example. Yeah. And um, yeah, they're I all they're all interested in, you know, just talking about some of those articles, um, um, especially. And I, I said the same with Professor Witt, Matthew Witt. Just um, th- th- this is this was really an amazing uh, compilation and flashpoint because a lot of the people in that book are known for other things um, that had nothing to do with Ukraine and Russia. So, um, and I think when I send these invitations out to people, they're kind of surprised. They're like, oh my gosh, 2014, let me look back and let the dust, knock off the dust and then see what's going on. That was my reaction. So long ago, nine years, (laughs) like you said, the time just flies. Yeah. But um, I want my audience to, um, if they had questions or, or a comment for you, how would they reach Professor Jeffrey Summers? Um, any of their questions or concerns? What would be the easiest way to contact you? Uh, would you mind just forwarding their uh, concerns to me? Absolutely, I can do right. that. Yeah, sure, definitely. Sure. Yes, I can do that yeah. and make that. Happen. I mean, I can also be you know looked up at the University of Wisconsin Milwaukee. My email address will come up. I mean, yeah. Uh, so that's that's the other way if people want to go direct. 
Yes, and I think you're kind of like me. Um, you try to avoid the social media as much as possible. <laughs> no, man. I, I tell you, yeah. and just trying to reach out and find um, these guests, because I'm very targeted about who I want on the show. Um, I just don't involve myself into the Twitter sphere at all. I mean, yeah. because it, it, it's terrible, just the, the toxicity of the exchanges and, and everything yep. else. And I wanted to be more intimate and direct and, and you cut yep. down all the background noise. And, and this has been a great um, episode 33. And like I said, you're definitely welcome to come on down the road and we can discuss other issues as well. But I think that this has been a great contribution um, to the Ukraine-Russia situation that we've been discussing over the last few weeks. And uh, Professor Summers, I hope you have a great day. I wish we had a longer conversation, but I have to um, pick kids up from school and everything else. <laughs> I remember those days. They were glorious. Hard as well. Hard as well. Hey, I, thank you so much for having me on. It was great. You know, you're smart, you're thoughtful. I love having conversations with people like you. Uh, I'm not religious at all, but boy, let's pray that this war ends. I mean, because hey. it's just terrible. It's terrible. The same here. I, I affirm everything you just said. But um, beautiful people, we have um, Mike Termot. He's coming on Wednesday to join the forum. He's a libertarian candidate running for the president of the United States 2024. Um, I think he ran for Congress um, in Florida, unsuccessfully ran. And I think he has ties to Virginia as well. But we will discuss things with him. We have Tina Landis coming on the show next week to discuss on um, the climate issues and environment um and her contribution to socialist reconstruction and her book that she published as well back in 2020 i believe we have a lot of guests coming down the road we have norman finkelstein coming on um in april we have dawn duke my dissertation director her new book that she just released back in january so we have tons of people professors activists um people that i know personally not because they just want to come on the forum but they have something to um, share with the audience. My dad is coming on as well to kind of talk about uh, politics and just his influences and how he got into politics and how he shaped, I guess, my way of thinking uh, to a certain extent. But have a great afternoon and I hope you all enjoyed this episode 33 with Professor Jeffrey Summers and we'll talk soon. Cheers, beautiful people.